Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three new movies to review for you, and all of them have debuted this week. So now that I'm out of award season, it is now time for me to get into my usual movie reviews. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one called Monster, which debuted on Netflix on May 7th, 2021. But strangely enough, according to IMDb, Monster is a 2018 movie. I also should note that there are several movies that are named Monster. Probably most notably is the one from... 2003, directed by Patty Jenkins and starring Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci, where Charlize Theron portrayed Eileen Vornos. And even though I have known that was Charlize Theron, it still doesn't look like her. This movie is an entirely different film from Charlize Theron's 2003 movie, which nabbed her an Oscar win. Uh, Deservedly so, I might add. But this movie, Monster from 2018, but actually was released in 2021, is about a smart, likable 17-year-old film student from Harlem who sees his world turned upside down when he's charged with a murder. We follow his dramatic journey through a complex legal battle. The 17-year-old in question here is a young man whose name is... Oh, man. Uh, Oh, Steve Harmon. And he's played by a fine young actor by the name of Kelvin Harrison Jr. And Steve Harmon comes from a upper middle class, I should say an upper middle class family with a mother who's played by Jennifer Hudson and a father who's played by Jeffrey Wright. He is an ambitious high school student and he also is an aspiring filmmaker. In fact, at his prestigious private school, his film teacher, who also happens to be his biggest ally, or one of his biggest allies, is Leroy Sawicki, who's played in this movie by Tim Blake Nelson, an actor we have not seen in quite some time. And Steve Harmon is not exactly charged for murdering uh, a bodega shopkeeper, but he is... Um, at least charged for being an accessory to the murder. As the movie goes on, and I don't want to spoil too much, you learn that he's not on trial for committing the murder, but he is on trial for aiding and abetting the people who actually did. And his defense attorney is a a white woman named Catherine O'Brien, who's played in this movie by Jennifer L., And Jennifer L. is not a household name, at least not yet, but she is a very good actress. In fact, a lot of people who started watching the movie Contagion during the pandemic probably know her from that film, where she plays one of the research scientists who actually develops the vaccine to uh, prohibit anyone from getting the virus in that film. And Contagion didn't exactly repeat what we're going through right now. The virus in the movie Contagion was much worse. But anyway, Jennifer L. has also been in such movies uh, in addition to Contagion. That's where I know her best. She was in Zero Dark Thirty along with Jessica Chastain. She was in a BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice from 1995 where she played Elizabeth Bennett. Um, opposite of Colin Firth, who played Mr. Darcy, who seems to be more popular these days than Prince Charming. And she's been in several other movies as well. She's a very good actress. Again, not a household name, but this is probably one of the films where she is a standout in the film. Also of note is the prosecuting district attorney, whose name is Anthony Petroselli, who's played by... Another actor who is not particularly well-known by his name, his name is Paul Ben Victor, but you definitely know him when you've seen his face. 
And this is a really good ensemble uh, cast here, including some actors I didn't expect to be in this film. For instance, there is a fellow prisoner of Steve Harmon's whose name is Raymond Sunset Green, who's played by the Bronx-raised rapper Nas. And I believe that this is Nas's first film in which he is acting as somebody who's not himself. He actually did have a voiceover appearance on the show The Get Down, but I believe this is his first appearance in a movie where he is playing somebody else other than himself. And he does a great job in this film. He only has about two or three scenes, but he's very effective in his role. And there's also another uh, supporting performance that's very much out of character by John David Washington, who plays Richard Bobo Evans, best known as Bobo, and he's a gang leader. And he is actually one of the perpetrators who did commit the murder in this film for which Steve Harmon is on trial for being an accomplice. So the movie does cut back and forth. It's a nonlinear story. And sometimes I think it cut back uh, and forth a little too much, but it does make a compelling court drama. And truth be told, if it did not cut back to any of the scenes to show Steve Harmon's childhood and how he's not likely to be involved in such a crime, it would still make a very compelling court drama. It's based on a novel of the same name by Walter Dean Myers, which I haven't read, but now that I know that it's been made into a movie, I kind of wish I had read the book before I saw the movie. But then again, reading the book on on such a movie like this is a double-edged sword because if I read the book, I'd know how it ended. And very much like Gone Girl, I think the final moments of this movie where the verdict is read in the trial of Steve Harmon, my heart was, was pounding. And when all was said and done, and I won't give anything away, I actually did find tears streaming down my face. It says a lot about the great storytelling in this movie, not to mention the great acting by just about everyone involved, especially Kelvin Harrison Jr., but also Jennifer L., Paul Ben-Victor, the latter of whom plays a prosecuting attorney. He sort of is the bad guy, uh, almost a necessary evil. He's not a bad person. He is somebody who is doing his job, which is arguing for the, the case of the state. But he's a very good attorney, which... I think especially when you get to know the character Steve Harmon a little bit more, you begin to hate him by default. But again, it, it's not he's not exactly the bad guy, but you, you get to know as the film progresses who the bad guys really are. And I really thought that Jennifer Hudson and Jeffrey Wright did a great job playing Steve Harmon's parents. Uh, they they might have had what, what would have been in any other movie a limited role, but... They sold every scene they were in. I also liked Tim Blake Nelson and John David Washington's very brief roles in this movie. Again, John David Washington is is playing a bit against type. And I don't exactly know why Monster was made in 2018 but not released until now. It seems too great a movie to be shelved. But regardless, it is on Netflix right now. It's out there for anyone to see, and it is a knockout in my book. It is a pitch-perfect courtroom drama directed by Anthony Mandler. And Anthony Mandler is actually a white man. Um, And I say that because the movie is predominantly black, so I wouldn't have guessed that uh, a white person would have directed this. But Anthony Mandler is known for directing a lot of music videos, by such a diverse array of artists from Fun to Taylor Swift to Rihanna to Justin Bieber, and that's just naming a few. As far as films go, I believe this is his first work of fiction. I can't exactly say for sure, but this is definitely his most 
high-profile directorial effort to date, and very much like Mark Romanek and Spike Jones and other directors who have started out with music videos <clears throat> and gone on to movies, Anthony Mandler did an amazing job with the movie Monster. I wish that the name of this film was a little bit more original, and sometimes the cutting back and forth between the past and the present got a little carried away, but I do think that for the things that the title and the editing might lack, everything else, including the compelling storytelling and the courtroom drama itself, more than makes up for the other weaknesses of this movie. I enjoyed Monster a lot. I don't know what took it three years to finally get released. And considering it was released back in 2018, you can't blame the pandemic on this one. But either way, it's out there, it's on streaming, and it is worth checking out. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is another Netflix original that premiered on Netflix on May 5th, 2021, and it is called The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. This is not so much a movie as much as it is a limited documentary miniseries. And the term The Son of Sam might sound familiar because the son of Sam is one of the monikers that was given to serial killer David Berkowitz, who between 1976 and 1977 murdered uh, six people and injured seven using a 44 caliber revolver. And even though he was probably not the only person in New York City with a gun, he still struck terror into the hearts of several... Uh, <laughs> Millions of New Yorkers, particularly those who lived in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens. I think he did a majority of his murders in the Bronx, but he did a couple in or attempted murders in uh, Brooklyn and Queens as well. Never in Manhattan. I think Manhattan wouldn't have been, would have been a hornet's nest. But David Berkowitz was apprehended by the NYPD after a witness found. Uh, David Berkowitz taking a parking ticket off of his windshield and then five blocks away, a son of Sam murder happened. And the, the NYPD arrested David Berkowitz a couple of days later in front of his apartment home in Yonkers on August 10th, 1977. And David Berkowitz, when he was arrested, claimed that a 2000 year old dog that was possessed by Satan told him to commit these murders. And upon searching his apartment, the NYPD found that not only was David Berkowitz psychotic and antisocial, but he also was a Satanist and believed the devil was making him do all these things. Despite the fact that that sounds completely insane, David Berkowitz, against the advice of his lawyers, pleaded guilty. And to this day, he's still alive, but he's serving six consecutive life sentences in prison today. However, the documentary series, The, Son of Sam, the Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, argues that David Berkowitz was not the only 44 caliber killer. And even David Berkowitz himself, when interviewed by the primary investigative journalist who came up with the theory that there was more than one Son of Sam, David Berkowitz himself said that he did not commit all of these murders. What the documentary doesn't explain is why David Berkowitz pleaded guilty if he didn't do all these murders. He did admit to some of them, but not all of them. And this documentary is more than just a conspiracy theory. As a matter of fact, conspiracy theories are one of those things I never bought into in the first place, but over the last few years with 
Alex Jones and QAnon and all these other American psychos who are coming up with these conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories have completely even lost the little bit of fun they used to be. And I'm just speaking for somebody who got a kick out of hearing certain conspiracy theories. But what the investigative journalist Mari Terry uh, found out seems to go beyond conspiracy theories because he seems to have actual proof that David Berkowitz was not the only uh, son of Sam, not the only 44 caliber killer. Interestingly enough, he also has explanations behind why when David Berkowitz was apprehended by the NYPD, the Son of Sam murders stopped. And I'm not going to give away all the details here, but I will say that this docuseries is very compelling. And Mari Terry is actually one of those elusive characters because there's no webpage dedicated to him. There are a number of articles, but there's no Wikipedia page to date. But as of the date that this program gets released onto podcast, that may change because well, a web page is created every six seconds. An entry on Wikipedia is probably every millisecond <laughs> or every nanosecond, I should say. But in, in any event... Maury Terry wrote a book about his theories, and they go beyond conspiracy theories too, about Satanism in America, especially in the 60s and 70s, and how David Berkowitz was tied to the Satanist movement, which he undoubtedly was. And he definitely was a Satanist while he was living in Yonkers and living an antisocial life. But he begins to tie the Satanist movement almost indirectly to other notable people in the dark history of America, such as Charles Manson and L. Ron Hubbard. And that's all I'm really going to say. Mari Terry, who, who literally wrote the book on how David Berkowitz could not be the only 44 caliber killer or the only son of Sam, is dead. But in this special, he's voiced by Paul Giamatti. And I don't know if Paul Giamatti is voicing the character because it's another gig or if because he actually believes uh, the late Maury Terry and his theories. I do actually think that Paul Giamatti does a good job voicing uh, Maury Terry or at least reading his journal entries and connecting all the things you see on screen to what Maury Terry had found in his journalistic research. And I think by the time the, the fourth part of this four-part series comes into play, that's where the miniseries begins to fall apart for me. Actually, Maury Terry was the very first person to interview David Berkowitz, which he did in 1993, 15 years after David Berkowitz was officially sentenced to prison. And if he had lived in probably any of the southern states or committed these crimes in places that had the death penalty, he would have gotten the death penalty. But he's still alive in prison. And also, he has actually refused parole because David Berkowitz is now a born-again Christian. It was surprising to actually see... David Berkowitz and Maury Terry, um, the interview, because David Berkowitz was very polite. He was very articulate. And you could tell he certainly changed from the late 70s. Not that that condones his crimes, because they certainly don't. But I think once David Berkowitz began to tell Maury Terry that many of his theories were correct, paradoxically, Maury Terry's theories began to lose credibility, at least for me. And I don't know if necessarily that's where the fourth entry in this four-part series went wrong. I do think that Maury Terry's death was not explained particularly well. And you, you might be able to look up when or how 
Maury Terry died. I would definitely love to know why he died, whether it was natural causes, whether it was a drug overdose, or whether there was actually a story behind, maybe a conspiracy behind his death as well. But there is one shootout at the very end of the movie that takes place in 2013. And once you find out who's behind the shootout, it's not particularly thrilling or it doesn't really tell you anything about the grand scheme of the story you were just told. So I think that The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, just forgot the the title of the movie there. The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness is a good miniseries, but I think by the time the fourth chapter comes in, it just falls short of being great. I think that the first chapter of the, th- the series tells you pretty much what a lot of other documentaries or episodes of Unsolved Mysteries could have told you about how the son of Sam brought terror into the hearts of millions of New Yorkers and how he went about his killings and also the certain makeup of his victims. So I think you could see that just about anywhere, but the second and third chapters in this miniseries are really when the story begins to become interesting and solidify. But by the fourth chapter, it seemed like the filmmakers didn't quite know what to do. It even seemed that they forgot to utilize Paul Giamatti's voiceover efforts. So the Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness is not a perfect miniseries, but it is passable. And the first three chapters are compelling enough for me to give it my rating of a checkout. And again, true crime is very (laughs) appealing, even if you wouldn't want this kind of thing to happen to you. And for that matter, who would, but again, I don't think it's so dark that it would give you nightmares, but a lot of the Satanism stuff that Maury Terry digs up might make you feel queasy and nightmarish. It certainly made me feel that way, but it is compelling storytelling to a certain point. And for that reason, it is worth checking out maybe once. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that is a prime, that is an Amazon Prime video original movie called The Boy from Medellin. And this is a film directed by Matthew Heineman about Colombian reggaeton singer Jay Balvin as he prepares for his 2019 homecoming concert amid intense political turmoil in Matthew Heineman's latest documentary, as I just said. So, Jay Balvin is a name that might not be familiar to Americans who don't speak Spanish, but he is from a small town in Colombia named um, Medellin. Maybe that's not the smallest town in Colombia, because it actually, if you see the pictures of it, in this documentary, it actually is a sprawling town, but I wouldn't exactly call it a city. But Jay Balvin was, his birth name is Jose Alvaro Osorio Balvin, and he has become a critical and commercial success in most Spanish-speaking parts of the world as a reggaeton singer. And I haven't actually heard about reggaeton for about... 15 years for a little while. It was a crossover genre here in the United States in the mid aughts around 2004, 2005, there were artists like Pitbull who's still around and daddy Yankee, who we haven't heard from for a little while bringing reggaeton to English speaking audiences. 
And interestingly enough, Jay Balvin, that's how I'm going to pronounce his name, actually moved to the United States in, um, well, when he was 17 years old and he settled in Miami to become a reggaeton star, but he actually found himself struggling by painting houses during the day and setting up his reggaeton persona at night. So he eventually made his way back to Colombia, but through more hard work and more dedication to his music, he actually found a huge audience of, again, first there, they were uh, Colombian and then eventually a lot of South America and then Latin America and Mexicans eventually caught on to this performer. And the concert footage in this movie is breathtaking. It's amazing how much access the cameraman and director Matthew Heineman was able to get with uh, Jay Balvin. And it also is really neat to see how much he's actually been embraced in the United States so far. And he's beginning to actually become a bit of a crossover artist. He's already been on the tonight show starring Jimmy Fallon, and he's been on a couple of other TV shows as well as is documented here. And I do actually think that what sets this documentary apart from other documentaries about musicians is the fact that this popular reggaeton artist is setting up this huge concert in his hometown amid intense political turmoil. And this is in 2019 when I I don't know very much about the leader of Colombia, but I do know that the president of Brazil right now is a complete idiot. He was elected controversially in the same kind of way that Donald Trump was in the sense that there, it seems like a lot of people were not in favor of this president of Brazil gaining power, especially since he had no prior political experience and actually worked as a film star and a comedian before delving into politics. But he is president of Brazil right now, unlike Donald Trump, who's the who's not president of the United States anymore. And... Brazil is one of the few countries that's having a widespread panic with the coronavirus right now. Brazil and India are among the countries that are still struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic. And while the, the United States is struggling too, we are making a huge comeback thanks to good leadership. Just putting it out there. But it seems that Colombia might be having the same kind of issue that Brazil is having with the controversial political turmoil as a result of poor leadership. But the movie actually ties that in very well, showing how a pop star can actually free the minds of even oppressed people. And... I think Matthew Heineman does a great job shooting the concert footage, shooting some behind-the-scenes footage of Jay uh, Balvin and his his life in Colombia now, where he's living very well. He's busy, of course, but um, fortunately, this documentary is in the good hands of Matthew Heineman, who was actually nominated for Best Documentary Feature in 2016 for the movie Cartel Land. And I have not seen the movie Cartel Land yet, but if it's anything like this documentary about Jay Balvin, I should probably check it out. It It's another one of those documentaries that did not get a particularly wide release, even in arthouse cinemas, but it's it might actually get more exposure thanks to this film that people can watch on Amazon prime, just like me. The movie again is called the boy from Medellin and Medellin is a city in Colombia where Jay Balvin has his roots and where he's done very well for himself as a musical artist through a lot of hard work. 
And while there are some slow moments in The Boy from Mayday Lynn, I did find myself not only appreciating J Balvin's music, but also liking the way that the documentary was structured and how it weaved itself into something more than just the music. For that reason, The Boy from Medellin gets my rating of a knockout. This is a film that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2020. As I said before, it's now on Amazon Prime Video, and if you're subscribed to that, you can watch the movie at no extra charge. And especially if you are a fan of reggaeton music, and I certainly have an appreciation for it myself, you will get a lot of enjoyment out of this documentary. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the films I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into movies that are coming out on streaming this coming week. Now, there are some movies that are debuting in theaters and are only being released in theaters right now. I actually heard of a really good one with Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal, but I am staying away from movies right now. Although I do have some good news, at least for me, I have had my second COVID vaccine shot and I'm going to wait a little while before venturing out into the world and doing things that I normally did before the pandemic, just to make absolutely sure that this vaccine settles in. I do want to encourage all of you out there. If you have not gotten your vaccine yet, please get it. Whether it's Moderna Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, you are doing yourselves a favor and you are doing everyone else around you a favor if you get that vaccine. So I'm I'm just giving I'm just telling you like it is. But anyway, let's start with movies that will be premiering or making an appearance on Netflix. Today, Saturday, May 8th, is the appearance of a movie called Sleepless. And Sleepless is a movie starring Jamie Foxx, in addition to Michelle Monaghan, Dermot Mulroney, and Gabrielle Union, amongst other people. T.I. is also in it. And this is a movie about a cop with a connection to the criminal underworld who scours a nightclub in search of his kidnapped son. I did see this movie in theaters, but even though I like Jamie Foxx a lot, I actually kind of forgot about this movie. I saw it once... And you would think a movie with Jamie Foxx and Michelle Monaghan would be memorable, but this one really wasn't. But if you want to see it for yourself, it is available on Netflix beginning May 8th, 2021. On Wednesday, May 12th, a Netflix original called Dance of the 41 will be making an appearance on Netflix, or rather it's going to be debuting on Netflix. Dancer, whoops. And I'm going to look that up right now because it has an unusual name. Let's see. And I just messed up typing it in. Let me try it again. Okay. The internet's not giving me any information about this movie, but there is another film premiere that is a Netflix original. It's called Oxygen. This one could be a science documentary. It could be an action film. Let's see. The movie actually stars uh, Melanie Laurent, and it looks to be a foreign film. And it is about a woman who wakes up in a cryogenic chamber. That's got to be rough. With no recollection of how she got there, and she must find a way out before running out of air. 
And for those of you who don't know, the star of the movie, Melanie Laurent, is a French actress. She is 37 years old, and she was in, actually, in Glorious Bastards. She was in the movie Beginners, which was the movie that won Christopher Plummer his only Oscar after being nominated several times. She was in Now You See Me, and she was also in a 2014 movie called Breathe, which I think she also directed. She's not a household name, but she is a very good actress. And this is a movie that even though it's a foreign film, I will see it. And I will let you know what I think on next week's show, a a film that will be appearing on Netflix on Thursday, May 13th, but is not a Netflix original is one that is called layer cake, which could be about many things. There is a layer cake movie from 2004 that stars Daniel Craig, before he was James Bond and Sienna Miller, this might be the one. It is about a successful cocaine dealer who gets two tough assignments from his boss on the eve of his planned early retirement. This movie is directed by Matthew Vaughn, and Matthew Vaughn is a British director who has previously brought us such films in a directorial capacity as... Kingsman, The Secret Service, and Kingsman, The Golden Circle, both of which were excellent films. He also directed X-Men First Class, which was the first prequel to the X-Men films, which was pretty good. But I actually think the film that came out after that, X-Men Days of Future Past, was an improvement. X-Men Apocalypse and the other X-Men film after that were disappointments, but... This movie, uh, Layer Cake, was actually Matthew Vaughn's directorial debut. And after that, he directed Stardust, which starred Claire Danes, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Robert De Niro. Great way to have a sophomore effort of a film. And Kick-Ass came out uh, three years after that, which starred Aaron Taylor Johnson, Chloe Grace Moretz, Mark Strong, and Nicolas Cage. That was a unique film. Maybe not a great film, but Layer Cake was Matthew Vaughn's um, debut. It was not the debut performance of Daniel Craig, far from it, but it might have been a film that puts Daniel Craig on the map, maybe. But either way, it's going to be appearing on Netflix on Thursday, May 13th, which means that I'm not going to review it on the show, but I might check it out for myself. On Friday, May 14th, there are some films that will be Netflix originals that will be premiering that day, including one that's called Fairy. Ferry spelled F-E-R-R-Y, as in taking like a Staten Island ferry. And this film, Ferry, is a foreign film. From what country, I don't exactly know. It's directed by Cecilia Verheden, which is a very unique last name. Um, Cecilia Verheden is Belgian. And this film is about a ruthless ferry booman who is sent to his native region of Brabant, probably a place in Belgium, by his boss Brink to avenge an attack on their gang when he meets the lovely Danielle and old family feuds resurface, Brabant starts to pierce his steel armor. Interesting. I don't know if this is a movie I'm going to see, but I will seek it out and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. But it certainly sounds like a very intriguing premise. Another movie that's going to be premiering on Netflix, which is a Netflix original, is a film that's called I Am All Girls. Sounds like a pro-feminist movie, but I don't know for sure. Maybe it's a sarcastic film. But I Am All Girls is a 2021 film. It's rated TVMA. And there aren't any actors or actresses in this movie I recognize. The stars of the film are Dion Lotz, Erica Wessels, and Masasa Mag- Mabangeni, forgive me for mispronouncing that name, but it is about a special crimes investigator who forms an unlikely bond with a serial killer to bring down a global child sex trafficking syndicate. This kind of premise has been done before, uh, particularly in Silence of the Lambs, but I'm not going to write the movie out just because of its similarities to Silence of the Lambs at least in terms of its um, things that it has in common. But uh, Donovan Marsh is the director, and I don't know if he is a foreigner. 
I've seen a few films that he has directed. For instance, there was one film he did with um, Gerard Butler and Gary Oldman called Hunter Killer, which was underwhelming to say the least. So maybe this film, I Am All Girls, will be a welcome change to that. I'll give it a chance, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Among the other films that will be premiering on Netflix include Jungle Beat, the movie. And considering that it has the subtitle, The Movie, my guess is it's probably based on a TV show. And it is animated, so it's probably based on a children's television show. And other than movies, I don't really watch a lot of TV, and especially animated shows, because this animated movie looks like it's for kids. It's about a homesick alien who crash lands his spaceship near the colorful African jungle. His new animal friends need to get him back to his ship and teach him about friendship and fun before his space conqueror father can take over the planet. So even though this movie is called Jungle Beat the movie, I don't see any indication that this was based on a TV show or a book because the writers of this film are listed here as Brent Dawes, who also directs the film, and Sam Wilson, but it doesn't say anything like based on the TV show or the video game created by this and that person, or even based on characters created by this and that person. So I don't know why the moniker, the movie, is placed on this uh, movie, but I might see that one. I can't exactly guarantee that I will, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And there are two other films that are going to be premiering on Netflix that are Netflix originals. The first one is called The Strange House, and this one sounds like a haunted house movie, but I'm not going to exactly say that that's what it is, and I can't find any information on this movie. Uh, I can see that there is a 2015 film, but I don't know if this is one that is a Netflix original. And if it was the Netflix original, I would probably say it would premiere in 2021, not 2015. But The Woman in the Window, that sounds like a horror film, if there was one. Because if there's a woman who's doing something uh, innocuous in the title of a movie, it's probably a horror film. Like The Lady Who Stands by the Chimney, for instance. That's not a real film, but if it was, you would assume it was a horror film. Don't deny that you wouldn't. But anyway, the movie The Woman in the Window is not so much a horror film as much as it is a crime, drama, and mystery. It actually has a very impressive cast of excellent actors, including Amy Adams, Gary Oldman, Anthony Mackie, Brian Tyree Henry, and Julianne Moore. These are A-list actors, and they're also deservedly A-list actors because all of them are excellent. Amy Adams tripped up a little bit in Hillbilly Elegy, but I don't think she tripped up so badly that that's going to ruin her career. But in The Woman in the Window, Amy Adams plays an an agoraphobic woman who lives alone in New York and begins spying on her new neighbors only to witness a disturbing act of violence. This movie sounds a little bit like Rear Window, um, the classic Alfred Hitchcock movie starring James Stewart and Grace Kelly, which is irreplaceable, but people have tried to emulate that formula several times. There actually is a movie called Copycat, (laughs) which might not bode very well for its name, but the movie stars... Sigourney Weaver as somebody who is agoraphobic. And interestingly enough, Harry Connick Jr. plays the villain in the movie, and he plays him so well. I mean, Harry Connick Jr. is one of those guys who, usually in movies, he plays the nice guy, and that seems a good fit because he seems like a very nice guy. But in this movie, he's the villain who's stalking Sigourney Weaver's character. Yeah, he's really scary. So I don't know amongst these people who are who's the bad guy in this film or the perceived bad person. It could be Gary Oldman. He's played villains several times before. Anthony Mackie's played the villain a few times, but he's best known for actually playing uh, 
Nighthawk, who's become the new Captain America, according to the new series, which is on Disney Plus right now. But The Woman in the Window is a movie that I will see, hand to God, and I will let you know what I think of the movie on next week's show. your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. So I told you about all the movies that are either premiering or making an appearance on Netflix this next week of April, excuse me, April, uh, May 9th through May 14th, 2021. And I'm looking on Disney Plus, and there are some movies that are going to be making an appearance on that platform, but no Disney Plus originals. There is going to be a documentary on Friday, May 21st that's going to be premiering on Disney+. Plus. It's a Disney Plus original. It's called Inside Pixar Unpacked, but I'll let you know about that documentary a little later on. As for HBO Max, it looks like there are no... Oh, actually... Nope, never mind. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry to throw you a loop here and there, but it looks like on... The week of May 9th through May 14th, we have a film on Friday, May 14th, that is going to be premiering on HBO Max for 31 days from its respective theatrical release, and the movie is called Those Who Wish Me Dead. It sounds like a very intriguing title. I'm looking it up right now, and as as fast as I can... Uh, This one actually has Angelina Jolie in it. And Angelina Jolie has not been in a movie for quite some time. So I I think she's one of those actresses who's solidified into the A-list so that if she doesn't have to act in another movie for the rest of her life, she doesn't necessarily have to. But I think eventually even the biggest stars begin to realize they're losing relevance. At least that's what I'm suspecting. But Those Who Wish Me Dead is going to be in theaters and on HBO Max on May 14th. It is about a teenage murder witness who finds himself pursued by twin assassins in the Montana wilderness with a survival expert tasked with protecting him and a forest fire threatening to consume them all. This sounds like an amazing film. It's directed by Taylor Sheridan, and Taylor Sheridan has a very rich um, repertoire for directing films. And let me just give you uh, a a synopsis of the films he's directed. He directed Wind River from 2017, which starred Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen. And it is a shame that Wind River got nominated for no Oscars. That movie was excellent. It also is about a murder that takes place in a less-than-populated part of the United States. This one involved... Uh, murder of a Native American woman, and that was a very good film. But actually, Taylor Sheridan, if you can pardon me for a second, is less known for directing as he is for his screenwriting. And he's written several excellent uh, screenplays, including Sicario, which is an amazing movie which starred Emily Blunt, Josh Brolin, and Benicio Del Toro. Emily Blunt should have been nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for Sicario. The fact that she wasn't is an absolute crime, but Sicario was an excellent film nonetheless. Uh, Taylor Sheridan also wrote the screenplay to Hell or High Water, which was a film that, in my opinion, wasn't perfect, but surprisingly it got more nominations at the Oscars than Sicario did. But Hell or High Water is a pretty good neo-Western film. He also wrote the screenplay to Wind River and also Sicario, Day of the Soldado, which was a, a sequel to Sicario, but also much darker than Sicario. Sicario was pretty damn dark. So anyway, 
The movie Those Who Wish Me Dead is going to be premiering on HBO Max. I'm excited because A, this looks like an awesome film, and B, I don't necessarily have to go to the movies to see it because I'm not going to the movies for at least a couple of weeks, even though I've had my second vaccination shot. But I'm going to just try to keep my expectations down. I try to go into every movie with an open mind, but this could be, could be Angelina Jolie's comeback movie, but I will let you know if it deserves to be Angelina Jolie's comeback movie or not. Either way, it sounds like a very awesome premise and it involves the controversial subject of forest fires. Are they created by global warming or not? I would think that they were, but anyway, that's probably going to tie into this movie and I will see it and I will let you know exactly what I think on next week's show. So that just seems to be about it for the HBO Max films, but let's see, uh, there's actually Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be making an appearance on HBO Max again on Uh, Thursday, May 13th. I just wanted to throw that out there because I still haven't seen Wonder Woman 1984. I hear bad things about it as I hear about just about every DCEU, that's DC Extended Universe movie, except the original Wonder Woman and Aquaman. And Wonder Woman is undoubtedly the best of the DCEU movies. Wonder Woman 1984, I've heard bad things, but even though I'm not going to review it on this show because it's a little too late, I will check it out and I will let you know what I, I I won't let you know what I think, but I'll check it out and maybe I'll let you know what I think here and there on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.